Chapter 3 There will be a company of us tonight, said Mr. John to the two priests as he helped them to dismount. Mr. Albin has sent his man forward from Derby to say that he will be here before tonight. Mr. Ludlam and I are together for once, said Mr. Garlick. We must separate again tomorrow. He is for the north again, he tells me. There has been no more trouble. Not a word of it. They were beaten last time and will not try again, I think, for the present. You heard of the attempt at Candlemas, then? It had been a quiet time enough ever since Lent throughout the whole county, and it seemed as if the heat of the assault had cooled for want of success. Plainly a great deal had been staked upon the attack at Padley, which, for its remoteness from towns, was known to be a meeting place where priests could always find harborage. And, indeed, it was time that the Catholics should have a little breathing space. Things had been very bad with them. The arrest of Mr. Simpson, and still more, his weakness, though he had not as yet actually fulfilled his promise of going to church and was still detained in jail, the growing lukewarmness of families that seldom saw a priest, the blows struck at the Fitzherbert family, and, above all, the defection of Mr. Thomas. All these things had brought the hearts of the faithful very low. Mr. John himself had had an untroubled time since his return a little before Easter, but he had taken the precaution not to remain too long at Padley at one time. He had visited his other estates at Swinnerton and elsewhere, and had even been back again at Langley, but there had been no hint of any pursuit. Padley had remained untouched, the men went about their farm business, the housekeeper peered from her windows without a glimpse of armed men such as had terrified the household on Candlemas Day. It was only last night, indeed, that the master had returned, in time to meet the two priests who had asked for shelter for a day or two. They had stayed here before continually, as well as at Booth's Edge during their travels, both in the master's absence and when he was at home. There were a couple of rooms kept vacant always for men of God, and all priests who came were instructed, of course, in case of necessity, as to the hiding holes that Mr. Owen had contrived a few years before. Never, however, had there been any use made of them. It was a hot July afternoon when the two priests were met today by Mr. John outside the arched gate that ran between the hall and the buttery. They had already dined at a farm a few miles down the valley, but they were taken round the house at once to the walled garden, where drink and food were set out. Here their dusty boots were pulled off, they laid aside their hats, and were presently at their ease again. They were plain men, these two, though Mr. Garlick had been educated at Oxford, and, before his going to Rames, had been schoolmaster at Tideswell. In appearance he was a breezy sunburnt man, with very little of the clerk about him, and devoted to outdoor sports, which was something of a disguise to him since he could talk hawking and riding in mixed company with a real knowledge of the facts. He spoke in a loud voice with a strong Derbyshire accent, which he had never lost and now deliberately used. Mr. Ludlam looked far more of the priest. He was a clean-shaven man, of middle age, with hair turning to grey on his temples, and with a very pleasant disarming smile. He spoke very little, but listened with an interested and attentive air. Both were, of course, dressed in the usual riding costume of gentlemen, and used good horses. It was exceedingly good to sit here, with the breeze from over the moors coming down on them, with cool drink before them, and the prospect of a secure day, at any rate, in this stronghold. Their host, too, was contented and serene, and said so, frankly. I am more at peace, gentlemen, he said, than I have been for the past five years. My son is in jail yet, and I am proud that he should be there, since my eldest son... He broke off a moment. And I think the worst of the storm is over. Her grace is busying herself with other matters. You mean the Spanish fleet, sir? said Mr. Garlick. He nodded. It is not that I look for final deliverance from Spain, he said. I have no wish to be aught but an Englishman, as I said to Mr. Bassett a while ago, but I think the fleet will distract her grace for a while, and it may very well mean that we have better treatment hereafter. What news is there, sir? I hear that the Londoners buzz continually with false alarms. It was thought that the fleet might arrive on any day, but I understand that the fishing boats say that nothing has yet been seen. By the end of the month, I dare say, we shall have news. 
So they talked pleasantly in the shade till the shadows began to lengthen. They were far enough here from the seacoast to feel somewhat detached from the excitement that was beginning to seethe in the south. At Plymouth, it was said, all had been in readiness for a month or two past. At Tilbury, my Lord Leicester was steadily gathering troops. But here inland, it was more of an academic question. The little happenings in Derby, the changes of weather in the farms, the deaths of old people from the summer heats, these things were far more vital and significant than the distant thunders of Spain. A beacon or two had been piled on the hills by order of the authorities to pass on the news when it should come. A few lads had disappeared from the countryside to drill in Derby Marketplace. But except for these things, all was very much as it had been from the beginning. The expected catastrophe meant little more to such folk than the coming of the Judgment Day, certain but infinitely remote from the grasp of the imagination. The three were talking of Robin as they came down towards the house for supper, and as they turned the corner, he himself was at that moment dismounting. He looked surprisingly cool and well-trimmed, considering his ride up the hot valley. He had taken his journey easily, he said, as he had had a long day yesterday. And I made a round to pay a visit to Mistress Manners, he said. I found her abed when I got there, and Mrs. Alice says she will not be at Mass tomorrow. She stood too long in the sun yesterday at the carrying of the hay. It is no more than that. Mistress Manners is a marvel to me, said Garlic as they went towards the house. Neither wife nor nun, and she rules her house like a man, and she knows if a priest lift his little finger in Derby. She sent me my whole itinerary for this last circuit of mine, and every point fell out as she said. Robin thought he had seldom had so pleasant a supper as on that night. The windows of the low hall where he had dined so often as a boy were flung wide to catch the scented evening air. The sun was round to the west and threw long golden rays that were all lovely light and no heat, slantways on the paved floor and the polished tables and the bright pewter. Down at the lower end sat the servants, brown men, burned by the sun, lean as panthers, scarcely speaking, ravenous after their long day in the hayfields and up here three companions with whom he was wholly at his ease. The evening was as still as night, except for the faint peaceful country sounds that came up from the valley below, the song of a lad riding home, the barking of a dog, the bleat of sheep, all minute and delicate as unperceived, yet as effective as a rich fabric on which a design is woven. It seemed to him as he listened to the talk, the brisk, shrewd remarks of Mr. Garlick, the courteous and rather melancholy answers of his host, as he watched the second priest's eyes looking gently and pleasantly about him, as he ate the plain, good food, and drank the country drink, that, in spite of all, his lot was cast in very sweet places. There was not a hint here of disturbance, or of men's passions, or of ugly strife. There was no clatter, as in the streets of Derby, or pressure of humanity, or wearying politics of the marketplace. He found himself in one of those moods that visit all men sometimes, when the world appears, after all, a homely and genial place, when the simplest things are the best, when no excitement or ambition or furious zeal can compare with the gentle happiness of a tired body that is in the act of refreshment, or of a driven mind that is finding its relaxation. At least, he said to himself, he would enjoy this night and the next day and the night after with all his heart. The four found themselves so much at ease here that the dessert was brought into them where they sat, and it was then that the first unhappy word was spoken. Mr. Simpson, said Garlick suddenly, is there any more news of him? Mr. John shook his head. He hath not yet been to church, thank God, he said, so much I know for certain, but he hath promised to go. Why is he not yet gone? He promised a great while ago. I hear he hath been sick. Derby jail is a pestiferous place. They are waiting, I suppose, till he is well enough to go publicly, that all the world may be advertised of it. Mr. Garlick gave a bursting laugh. I cannot understand it at all, he said. There has never been so zealous a priest. I have ridden with him again and again before I was a priest. He was always quiet, but I took him to be one of those stout-hearted souls that need never brag. Why, it was here that we heard him tell of Mr. Nelson's death. Mr. John threw out his hands. These prisons are devilish, he said. They wear a man out as the rat can never do. 
Why, see my son, he cried. Oh, I can speak of him if I am but moved enough. It was that same Derby jail that wore him out too. It is the darkness and the ill food and the stenches and the misery. A man's heart fails him there who could face a thousand deaths in the sunlight. Man after man hath fallen there, both in Derby and in London and in all the prisons. It is their heart that goes. All the courage runs from them like water with their health. If it were the rack and the rope only, England would be Catholic yet, I think. The old man's face blazed with indignation. It was not often that he so spoke out his mind. It was very easy to see that he had thought continually of his son's fall. Mistress Manners hath told me the very same thing, said Robin. She visited Mr. Thomas in jail once, at least. She said that her heart failed her altogether there. Mr. Ludlam smiled. I suppose it is so, he said gently, since you say so. But I think it would not be so with me. The rack and the rope, rather, are what would shake me to the roots, unless God his grace prevailed more than it ever yet hath with me. He smiled again. Robin shook his head sharply. As for me, he said grimly with tight lips. It was a lovely night of stars as the four stepped out of the archway before going upstairs to the parlor. Behind them stood the square and solid house, resembling a very fortress. The lights that had been brought in still shone through the windows, and a hundred night insects leapt and poised in the brightness. And before them lay the deep valley, silent now except for the trickle of the stream, dark since the moon was not yet risen, except for one light that burned far away in some farmhouse on the other side, and this light went out like a closing eye even as they looked. But overhead, where God dwelt, all heaven was alive, the huge arch resting as it appeared on the monstrous bases of the moors and hills standing round this place like the mountains about Jerusalem was one shimmering vault of glory, as if it were there that the home of life had its place, and this earth beneath but a bedroom for mortals, or for those that were too weary to aspire or climb. The suggestion was enormously powerful. Here was this mortal earth that needed rest so cruelly, that must have darkness to refresh its tired eyes, coolness to recuperate its passion, and silence if ever its ears were to hear again. But there was radiance unending. All day a dome of rigid blue, all night a span of glittering lights, the very home of a glory that knows no waste and that therefore needs no reviving. It was to that only, therefore, that a life must be chained, which would not falter or fail in the unending tides and changes of the world. A soft breeze sprang up among the tops of the chestnuts, and the sound was as of the going of a great company that whispered for silence. It was within an hour of dawn that the first mass was said next morning by Mr. Robert Albin. The chapel was decked out as they seldom dared to deck it in those days, but the failure of the last attempt on this place and the peace that had followed made them bold. The carved chest of newly cut oak was in its place, with a rich carpet of silk spread on its face, and on the top the three linen cloths as prescribed by the ritual. Two silver candlesticks that stood usually on the high shelf over the hall fire and a silver crucifix of Flemish work taken from the hiding place were in a row on the back with red and white flowers between. Beneath the linen cloths a tiny flat elevation showed where the altar stone lay. The rest of the chapel, in its usual hangings, had only sweet herbs on the floor, with two or three long seats carried up from the hall below. An extraordinary sweetness and peace seemed in the place both to the senses and the soul of the young priest as he went up to the altar to vest. Confessions had been heard last night, and as he turned and saw beneath those carved angels that still today lean from the beams of the roof, the whole little space already filled with farm lads, many of whom were to approach the altar presently, and the grey head of their master kneeling on the floor to answer the mass, it appeared to him as if the promise of last night were reversed and that it was, after all, earth rather than heaven that proclaimed the peace and the glory of God. Robin served the second Mass himself, said by Mr. Garlick, and made his thanksgiving as well as he could meanwhile. But he found what appeared to him at the time many distractions in watching the tanned face and hands of the man who was so utterly a countryman for nine-tenths of his life, and so utterly a priest for the rest. His very sturdiness and breeziness made his reverence the more evident and pathetic. He read the Mass rapidly, in a low voice, harshened by shouting in the open air over his sports, 
made his gestures abruptly, and yet did the whole with an extraordinary attention. After the communion, when he turned for the wine and water, his face, as so often with rude folk in a great emotion, browned as it was with wind and sun, seemed lighted from within. He seemed etherealized, yet with his virility all alive in him. A phrase wholly inapplicable in its first sense came irresistibly to the younger priest's mind as he waited on him. When the strong man armed keepeth his house, his goods are in peace. Robin heard the third mass said by Mr. Ludlam from a corner near the door, and this one too was a fresh experience. The former priest had resembled a strong man subdued by grace, the second a weak man ennobled by it. Mr. Ludlam was a delicate soul, smiling often, as has been said, and speaking little. A mild man, said the country folk. Yet at the altar there was no weakness in him. He was as a keen, sharp blade, fitted as a heavy knife cannot be, for fine and peculiar work. His father had been a yeoman, as had the others, yet there must have been some unusual strain of blood in him, so deft and gentle he was, more at his ease here at God's table than at the table of any man. So he too finished his mass and began to unvest. Then with a noise as brutal as a blasphemy there came a thunder of footsteps on the stairs, and a man burst into the room with glaring eyes and rough gestures. "'There is a company of men coming up from the valley,' he cried, "'and another over the moor, and it is my lord Shrewsbury's livery.' In an instant all was in confusion, and the peace had fled. Mr. John was gone, and his voice could be heard on the open stairs outside, speaking rapidly in sharp, low whispers to the men gathered beneath. And meanwhile three or four servants, two men and a couple of maids, previously drilled in their duties, were at the altar, on which Mr. Ludlam had but that moment laid down his amice. The three priests stood together waiting, fearing to hinder or to add to the bustle. A low wailing rose from outside the door, and Robin looked from it to see if there was anything he could do. But it was only a little country servant crouching on the tiny landing that united the two sets of stairs from the court, with her apron over her head. She must have been in the partitioned west end of the chapel to hear the mass. He said a word to her, and the next instant was pushed aside as a man tore by bearing a great bundle of stuffs, vestments, and the altar cloths. When he turned again, the chapel was become a common room once more. The chest stood bare, with a great bowl of flowers on it, the candlesticks were gone, and the maid was sweeping up the herbs. "'Come, gentlemen,' said a sharp voice at the door. "'There is no time to lose.' He went out with the two others behind and followed Mr. John downstairs. Already the party of servants was dispersed to their stations, two or three to keep the doors, no doubt, and the rest back to kitchen work and the like to give the impression that all was as usual. The four went straight down into the hall to find it empty, except for one man who stood by the fireplace. But a surprising change had taken place here. Instead of the solemn paneling with the carved shield that covered the wall over the hearth, there was a great doorway opened through which showed not the bricks of the chimney breast, but a black space large enough to admit a man. See here, said Mr. John, there is room for two here, but no more. There is room for a third in another little chamber upstairs that is neatly joined onto this, but it is not so good. Now, gentlemen, this is the safer of the two? asked Robin abruptly. I think it to be so. Make haste, gentlemen. Robin wheeled on the others. He said that there was no time to argue in. See, he said, I have not yet been taken at all. Mr. Garlic hath been taken, and Mr. Ludlam hath had a warning. There is no question that you must be here. I utterly refuse, began Garlic. Robin went to the door in three strides and was out of it. He closed the door behind him and ran upstairs. As he reached the head, his eye caught a glint of sunlight on some metal far up on the moor beyond the belt of trees. He did not turn his head again. He went straight in and waited. Presently he heard steps coming up, and Mr. John appeared smiling and out of breath. I have them in, he said, by promising that there was no great difference after all, and that there was no time. Now, sir, and he went towards the wall at which long ago Mr. Owen had worked so hard. And yourself, sir? asked Robin, as once more an innocent piece of paneling moved outwards under Mr. John's hand. I'll see to that, but not until you are in. But... The old man's face suddenly blazed up. 
Obey me, if you please. I am the master here. I tell you I have a very good place. There was no more to be said. Robin advanced to the opening and sat down to slide himself in. It was a little door about two feet square, with a hole beneath it. Drop gently, Mr. Albin, whispered the voice in his ear. The altar vessels are at the bottom, with the crucifix on some soft stuff. That is it. Slide in and let yourself slip. There is some food and drink there, too. Robin did so. The floor of the little chamber was about five feet down, and he could feel woodwork on all three sides of him. When the door is closed, said the voice from the daylight, push a pair of bolts on right and left till they go home. Tap upon the shutter when it is done. The light vanished, and Robin was aware of a faint smell of smoke. Then he remembered that he had noticed a newly lit fire on the hearth of the hall. He found the bolts, pushed them, and tapped lightly three times. He heard a hand push on the shutter to see that all was secure, and then footsteps go away over the floor on a level with his chin. Then he remembered that he must be in the same chamber with his two fellow priests, separated from them by the flooring on which they stood. He rapped gently with his foot twice. Two soft taps came back. Silence followed. Time, as once before in his experience, seemed wholly banished from this place. There were moments of reflection when he appeared to himself as having but just entered. There were other moments when he might have been there for an eternity that had no divisions to mark it. He was in complete and utter darkness. There was not a crack anywhere in the woodwork, so perfect had been the young carpenter's handiwork, by which even a glimmer of light could enter. A while ago he had been in the early morning sunlight, now he might be in the grave. For a while his emotions and his thoughts raced one another, tumbling in inextricable confusion, and they were all emotions and thoughts of the present, intense little visions of the men closing around the house, cutting off escape from the valley on the one side and from the wild upland country on the other, questions as to where Mr. John would hide himself, minute, sensible impressions of the smoky flavor of the air, the unplaned woodwork, the soft stuffs beneath his feet. Then they began to extend themselves wider, all with that rapid, unjarring swiftness. He foresaw the bursting in of his stronghold, the footsteps within three inches of his head, the crash as the board was kicked in, then the capture, the ride to Derby bound on a horse, the jail, the questioning, the faces of my lord Shrewsbury and the magistrates, and the end. There were moments when the sweat ran down his face, when he bit his lips in agony and nearly moaned aloud. There were others in which he abandoned himself to Christ crucified, placed himself in everlasting hands that were mighty enough to pluck him not only out of this snare, but from the very hands that would hold him so soon. Hands that could lift him from the rack and scaffold and set him a free man among his hills again, yet that had not done so with a score of others whom he knew. He thought of these and of the girl who had done so much to save them all, who was now saved herself by sickness a mile or two away from these hideous straits. Then he dragged out Mr. Maine's beads and began to recite the mysteries. There broke in suddenly the first exterior sign that the hunters were on them, a muffled hammering far beneath his feet. There were pauses, then voices carried up from the archway nearly beneath through the hollowed walls then hammering again, but all was heard as through wool. As the first noise broke out, his mind rearranged itself and seemed to have two consciousnesses. In the foreground, he followed intently and eagerly every movement below. In the background, there still moved before him the pageant of deeper thoughts and more remote, of prayer and wonder and fear and expectation. And from that onwards, it continued so with him. Even while he followed the sounds, he understood why my lord Shrewsbury had made this assault so suddenly after months of peace. He perceived the hand of Thomas Fitzherbert, too, in the precision with which the attack had been made, and the certain information he must have given that priests would be in Padley that morning. There were noises that he could not interpret, vague tramplings from a direction which he could not tell, voices that shouted, the sound of metal on stone. He did interpret rightly, however, the sudden tumult as the gate was unbarred at last, and the shrill screaming of a woman as the company poured through into the house, a clamor of voices from beneath as the hall below was filled with men, the battering that began almost immediately, and finally the rush of shod feet up the outside staircases, one of which led straight into the chapel itself. Then, indeed, his heart seemed to spring upwards into his throat, and to beat there, as loud as knocking, 
so loud that it appeared to him that all the house must hear it. Yet it was still some minutes before the climax came to him. He was still standing there, listening to voices talking, it seemed, almost in his ears, yet whose words he could not hear. The vibration of feet that shook the solid joist against which he had leaned his head with closed eyes. The brush of a cloak once, like a whisper, against the very panel that shut him in. He could attend to nothing else. The rest of the drama was as nothing to him. He had his business in hand, to keep away from himself, by the very intentions of his will and determination, the feet that passed so close. The climax came in a sudden thump of a pike foot within a yard of his head, so imminent that for an instant he thought it was at his own panel. There followed a splintering sound of a pike head in the same place. He understood. They were sounding on the woodwork and piercing all that rang hollow. His turn then would come immediately. Talking voices followed the crash, then silence, then the vibration of feet once more. The strain grew unbearable. His fingers twisted tight in his rosary, lifted themselves once or twice from the floor edge on which they were gripped to tear back the bolts and declare himself. It seemed to him in those instants a thousand times better to come out of his own will rather than to be poked and dragged from his hole like a badger. In the very midst of such imaginings there came a thumping blow within three inches of his face, and then silence. He leaned back desperately to avoid the pike thrust that must follow, with his eyes screwed tight and his lips mumbling. He waited. And then, as he waited, he drew an irrepressible hissing breath of terror, for beneath the soft padding under his feet he could feel movements, blow follow blow, from the same direction and last a great clamor of voices all shouting together. Feet ran across the floor on which his hands were gripped again, and down the stairs. He perceived two things. The chapel was empty again, and the priest below had been found. He could follow every step of the drama after that, for he appeared to himself now as a mere witness, without personal part in it. First there were voices below him, so clear and close that he could distinguish the intonation and who it was that spoke, though the words were inaudible. It was Mr. Garlick who first spoke, a sentence of a dozen words, it might be, consenting, no doubt, to come out without being dragged, congratulating, perhaps, as the manner was, the searchers on their success. A murmur of answer came back, and then one sharp, peevish voice by itself. Again Mr. Garlick spoke, and there followed the shuffling of movements for a long while. And then, so far as the little chamber was concerned, empty silence. But from the hall rose up a steady murmur of talk once more. Again Robin's heart leapt in him, for there came the rattle of a pike end immediately below his feet. They were searching the little chamber beneath, from the level of the hall, to see if it were empty. The pike was presently withdrawn. For a long while the talking went on. So far as the rest of the house was concerned, the hidden man could tell nothing, or whether Mr. John were taken, or whether the search were given up. He could not even fix his mind on the point. He was constructing for himself, furiously and intently, the scene he imagined in the hall below. He thought he saw the two priests barred in behind the high table, my lord Shrewsbury in the one great chair in the midst of the room, Mr. Columbell, perhaps, or Mr. John Manners, talking in his ear, the men on guard over the priests and beside the door, and another, maybe, standing by the hearth. He was so intent on this that he thought of little else, though still on a strange background of another consciousness, moved scenes and ideas such as he had had at the beginning, and he was torn from this contemplation with the suddenness of a blow, by a voice speaking, it seemed, within a foot of his head. Well, we have those rats at any rate. He perceived instantly what had happened. The men were back again in the chapel, and he had not heard them come. He supposed that he could hear the words now because of the breaking of the panel next to his own. Ralph said he was sure of the other one too, said a second voice. Which was that one? The fellow that was at Fotheringay. Robin clenched his teeth like iron. Well, he is not here. There was silence. I have sounded that side, said the first voice sharply. Well, but... I tell you, I have sounded it. There is no time to be lost. My lord... Hark! said the second voice. There is my lord's man. There followed a movement of feet towards the door, as it seemed to the priest. 
He could hear the first man grumbling to himself and beating listlessly on the walls somewhere. Then a voice called something unintelligible from the direction of the stairs. The beating ceased, and footsteps went across the floor again into silence. He was dazed and blinded by the light when, after infinite hours, he drew the bolts and slid the panel open. He had lost all idea of time utterly. He did not know whether he should find that night had come or that the next day had dawned. He had waited there, period after period. He marked one of them by eating food that had no taste and drinking liquid that stung his throat but did not affect his palate. He had marked another by saying Compline to himself in a whisper. During the earlier part of those periods, he had followed, he thought with success, the dreadful drama that was acted in the house. Someone had made a formal inspection of all the chambers, a man who had said little and moved heavily with something of a limp. He had thought this to be my lord Shrewsbury himself, who suffered from the gout. This man had walked slowly through the chapel and out again. At a later period, he had heard the horses being brought round the house, heard plainly the jingle of the bits and a sneeze or two. This had been followed by long interminable talking, muffled and indistinguishable, that came up to him from some unknown direction. Voices changed curiously in loudness and articulation as the speakers moved about. At a later period, a loud trampling had begun again, plainly from the hall. He had interpreted this to mean that the prisoners were being removed out of doors, and he had been confirmed in this by hearing immediately afterwards again the stamping of horses and the creaking of leather. Again there had been a pause, broken suddenly by loud women's wailing. And at last the noise of horses moving off. The noise grew less. A man ran suddenly through the archway and out again, and, little by little, complete silence once more. Yet he had not dared to move. It was the custom, he knew, sometimes to leave three or four men on guard for a day or two after such an assault, in the hope of starving out any hidden fugitives that might still be left. So he waited again, period after period. He dozed a little for weariness, propped against the narrow walls of his hiding hole, woke, felt again for food, and found he had eaten it all, dozed again. Then he had started up suddenly, for without any further warning there had come a tiny indeterminate tapping against his panel. He held his breath and listened. It came again. Then fearlessly he drew back the bolts, slid the panel open, and shut his eyes, dazzled by the light. He crawled out at last, spent and dusty. There was looking at him only the little red-eyed maid whom he had tried to comfort at some far-off hour in his life. Her face was all contorted with weeping, and she had a great smear of dust across it. "'What time is it?' he said. "'It, it is after two o'clock,' she whispered. "'They have all gone?' She nodded, speechless. "'Whom have they taken?' "'Mr. Fitzherbert, the priests, the servants.' Mr. Fitzherbert? They found him then? She stared at him with the dull incapacity to understand why he did not know all that she had seen. Where did they find him? He repeated sharply. The master, he opened the door to them himself. Her face writhed itself again into grotesque lines, and she broke out into shrill wailing and weeping. <laughs>